0: Uh, today we read the parable of the, the vine dresser and it's a very famous parable that uh, Christ spoke and it was clear that he was speaking to the Pharisees who were right there. Um, and of course this parable is directed at the people of Israel. Um, the Jews, despite God sending them so many prophets, um, they would just uh, shame and abuse these prophets uh, and then, even after sending his prophets he sent his son and then Christ was basically predicting what was going to happen to him, that he sent his son and they killed the son um, and eventually never actually produced any, any fruit. Um, so obviously this is um, you know, for, the, for the, the chief priests and the, and the scribes and they knew it. Um, they knew that the parable was about them. In fact, when Jesus said that they would be ground to powder, their reaction was certainly not. You know, in another translation they say, God forbid. So they knew he was talking about them and when he looked at them and said they would be ground to powder, they reacted. So they got what the Lord was saying to them, which was you didn't produce any fruit from the vine that I planted. I planted it and instead you beat and you killed the people that I sent you um, instead of producing fruit. But of course, every time we see a parable, we wanna look at ourselves. not just at the Jews uh, because often we act in the same way that the parable tell you know talks about um, and the same way the Jews usually act. And so this parable has lots of little gems in it and I just want to kind of go through them. Um, a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. And of course he's talking about God, God who planted this vineyard, his people. Um, and it's a little bit strange that it says that God went into a far country, that he's no longer with us. That's kind of strange, where would, where would God go? Clearly, God didn't disappear. Um, and St. Uh, Cyril, the, the pillar of faith, meditates on this and he says that it's not that God was gone, it's that the people felt he was gone. They felt he was absent. And this, of course, affects the way people act. Um, when I feel like God isn't around, I act differently right, in the shadows, in our hearts, when no one can see, we act in a different way when we don't see people and when we don't feel God's presence. Um, Elijah used to have this, this great thing that he would say, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I, enst- whom, for whom I stand, I will p- surely present myself to him today. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. So his pr- the presence of God was always before Elijah's face. He always felt that presence. And and that's an important lesson uh, for us. When we we feel that presence of God and we feel the presence of him standing before us, it, it makes us act differently. So next we read that they beat the servants and even killed the son. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you beat up the servants of the vineyards, the owner's vineyard, the owner of the vineyard? So it must be the case that they considered them enemies. They must have seen these servants and the son and they considered them enemies. So who's the enemy? And I kind of want to talk about this for a bit. This concept is sometimes a bit fuzzy to me. Uh, So obviously someone who does something to me, right? That's an enemy, right? He attacks me. He hurts me. He stabs me with a sword. He blows up my house. He attacks my village. Right, These are the enemies that we think of when we think of enemies. You know, he does something to my family, he steals from me, he mugs me, he attacks me somehow. Okay, so that's kind of the first level of enemy, right, that, that physical enemy, the people that do things to me that way. But frankly, there just aren't a lot of people out there trying to kill us these days, right, or blow up our houses. We live in the United States, we live in Orange County, it's 2021, and there aren't a lot of people out there with swords, trying to get us. So it's, it's, it's pretty tame. So in today's era, who's the enemy? Well, it could be now someone who gossips about me, judges me, controls me, shames me, posts about me, attacks me in some way, personally, accuses me. So that's kind of another level of enemy. And they're still doing something to me, but at least it's not physical. But what about someone who thinks differently than me? What about that enemy? Can I hate someone who just thinks differently than I do? Not because they've done anything to me, but just because of the way they think? Sure. Right. Do, do Republicans hate Democrats? Right? If I'm, a, if I'm a Trump supporter and you're a Democrat, how do you feel about me? Right? Or, I'm a lib- or you're a liberal and I'm a Republican, how do you feel? Is there hatred there? Do people consider them enemies? Yeah. And what about the, the person who chooses to live, live their life differently than me? Can an enemy, enemy be someone who's a different religion? A Muslim, a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, a Protestant, someone who's trying to take our kids? Do people consider them enemies? Sure. Go to Ireland, the Catholics have been fighting the Protestants for a couple hundred years, like fighting with, like, guns. So they, for sure, consider each other enemies. And what about the person who's choose the life of sin? Can a murderer, someone who's immoral, be my enemy just because of the life they've chosen? What if it's no one I know? What if they've done nothing to me, but I know that they're a racist, they're a bigot. They, they practice sexual acts that I don't see appropriate. Can those people be considered my enemy? The people pushing ideologies on our children, the people in the schools who are telling our kids to prevent puberty in, in the fifth grade by getting hormone treatment, are they our enemies? Can the enemy even be closer than that? Can it be your husband? Can it be your wife? Can the enemy be someone that close to me, a good friend, my children, my neighbor? your boss. In service, even in the church, sometimes we, we have enemies in the church. right? Can the Amin al be the enemy? Can the Abuna be the enemy? Even higher, can the archdeacon be the enemy? Right. So, There are lots of enemies. In fact, we had a neighbor uh, move out like six months ago and their dog barked all night. And I'll tell you what, if I could have done something, I would have. As a, as a side note, Mother Teresa has this great quote. I, I found it while I was preparing this. I want you to be concerned about your next-door neighbor. Do you know your next-door neighbor? I laughed when I read that because I was like, yeah, I want to kill him. Um, so it, it turns out we have a lot of enemies. And how did the Jews handle the enemies in this parable again? They beat them, shamefully treated them, wounded them, cast them out, and eventually killed them. Silly Jews, right? And I can stand back, and I can judge the Jews all day, can't I? They're misguided. They don't know what we know. They're not Christians. But to be honest, this list sounds like a, a lot of the stuff I do to my enemies. Beat them, shamefully treat them, wound them, cast them out. I haven't killed anybody yet. But. And then Christ comes along, and he says, love your enemies. Now, we just went through a long list of people, who we don't have a lot of love for. But how? How do we do that? The first trick is you actually can't see the enemy. You can't see him. The human being that's in front of you, doing all the things to you that I just mentioned, it turns out they're not the enemy. That's the first trick. St. Paul says in Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So who's the enemy? It's the demons. A different translation, and I'll read it again because I think it's worth reading. The warfare we're engaged in, you see, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule the world in this dark age, against the wicked spiritual elements in the heavenly places. So it turns out flesh and blood isn't the enemy. People aren't the enemy. It's Satan. He is the ultimately the enemy. He's the person who attacks humans through each other. In the, in the you know the very famous book you've all read about the Paradise of the Fathers in Arabic Bustan Ruhban, something we it's kind of our our, our our second bible if you will. There's this wonderful quote. If you see your brother falling into a great sin, say without hesitation, I curse you, Satan. My brother is not to blame. Wow. This is the Bustan. This is, the, this is, the, this is the, the paradise of the fathers. This is the, the hardcore monks. I'll read it again. If you see your brother falling into sin, say without hesitation, I curse on you, Satan. My brother is not to blame. Look at the spirit. You see someone messing up, and instead of posting about them, shaming them, attacking them, letting everyone know what they did wrong, talking about them, It says, I curse you, Satan, my brother is not to blame. Wow. St. John of Cronstadt has this very little short saying, and it's the, to me the secret of loving your brother. Never confuse the person formed in the image of God with the evil that is in them. Never confuse the person who is formed in the image of God with the evil that is in them. So you see, that's the secret. You see Satan, not the person. You see the reality of the situation. The person is a puppet, and he's being manipulated or she's being manipulated by Satan, as we all are, all the time. So my love for people has to come from the fact that I see the image of God in them. I see them as my brothers. Right? Once we accept God as our father, we have to accept all of you, I accept all of you as my siblings. If God's my dad and you're his sons and I'm adopted, we're all brothers and sisters. Mother Teresa says, today if, we have, today if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. That man, that woman, that child is my brother or my sister. If everyone could see the image of God in his neighbor, do you think we would still need tanks and generals? So she's basically saying there'd be no war if we saw the image of God in each other. So the gospel tells us love God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's that second part that we just don't focus on enough. We're all about the I love God thing. But the love your neighbor as yourself, that one's a bit harder, right? Because the neighbor, they're ugly, they're broken. They're sinful. They're messed up. We all are. Elder Porphyrios has this really wonderful story. He was an old man, and he took confessions all the time. He was a confession father in the church, and he would take confessions for 15 hours a day sometimes. And his disciples, he was an old man, and his disciples would beg him, Father, rest. You're, you're, You're killing yourself. You can't take confessions for 15 hours. And there's people out the door, And he would insist on taking confessions. And one time he turned to his disciples and he said something to them that just blows my mind. He says, if I can't take these people with me to heaven, then I don't want to go. If I can't take these people with me to heaven, then I don't want to go. Wow. You want to talk about love for your neighbor? That's, that's, That's almost... I, I love them more than I, than I want to be with God. I don't want to be with God if I can't be with them, and if they're not there with me. That spirit, w- the fear, the love of everyone else to the point of wanting their salvation, it's amazing. I'll skip this story, it's a long one, but maybe I'll read it at the end, okay. All right, so the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. So why did they send them away empty-handed? Do you think they had a bunch of fruit and they said, nah, I don't want to share? I mean, he's leasing in the, in, the, in the parable. It says he leased it to the vine, to, the, to these guys, right? So why did they send him away empty-handed? Because there was no fruit. There's nothing to give. The Jews were unable to generate fruit from the vineyard. So why didn't they create any fruit? Well, there's plenty of reasons. First, maybe the Jews followed the law too strictly. Maybe they thought of God the wrong way. Maybe they were so focused on kind of blind legalistic tradition that they didn't produce any fruit, that the people in their care, although although they were very good at following rules, didn't actually produce anything. In the story of the fig tree, on Monday night of Holy Week, we see that Christ curses the fig tree because it has leaves and no fruit. And the fathers tell us that those leaves are ascetic practices, whether they be fasting or matanya or vigil. And those leaves can even be the sacraments of the church, communion, confession, prayer. So they aren't the fruit. They're just the leaves, right? They're just the leaves that take in the sunlight that produce the fruit. So what's the fruit? Well, let's bring it back for full circle. Maybe the fruit is, maybe they had no fruit, it's, beca- it's because they, they wanted to kill their enemies. Maybe it's because the reason there's no fruit is there's no love. Because when they see an enemy, they wanted to kill them. There's no fruit in that. They couldn't see the image of God and the people that were in the vine. And this is a very important concept in in service. Without love, there is no fruit. Again, I'll quote Mother Teresa. I've been quoting her quite a bit. But she says, every work of love done with a full heart brings people closer to God. And so that's it. Every work done with love brings people closer. Service done with love works. Service done without doesn't. And so we say to ourselves, you silly Jews, you're not supposed to kill your enemies. Don't you know any better? And yet here we are in the era of social media doing the exact same thing. And now the bullying is getting worse. The taunting is getting worse. The attacking is getting worse because we have a platform. I can reach a 1,000 people very, very quickly. In fact, if I want to shame someone instead of just whispering it to, to the guy next to me, I can post it every human being I know finds out. What a weapon. And finally, it says that he wanted some of the fruit of the vineyard. St. Carol comments about this. He says, what does it mean that he wanted some fruit? Does God lack anything? Does God need the fruit? Was he hungry? Let's take it further. When, When we're asked to serve Does God need our service? Does God need my efforts? Does God need my money? Does God need anything from me? Does God need? The God who has everything, who created everything is gonna ask you for something. So I want you to think about Palm Sunday. On that day, Christ said something that really boggles the mind. And we stand before this, this thing that he says and you just wonder, he sent his two disciples to get the, the donkey. You all know the story. And he said, I want you to go and tie the donkey. And if th- anyone says anything to you, what are you supposed to say? Who remembers? The Lord has need of them. If you if 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 anyone says anything, say the Lord has need. The Lord needs. That's a, a mind boggling comment. And the church that day goes crazy, right? It says, the Lord who sits upon the cherubim rode on a donkey. You don't need a donkey. You ride above the cherubim. And we, we say this over and over in the hymnology, right? Why? Because it boggles the mind that he needed the donkey. So there must be something else. What does the Lord need? Why did he want fruit? What is the fruit? So there must be a mystery here, and there is. God wants to raise man to participate with him, to participate in God's glory, to be a partaker of the divine nature. It's like God wants me to be a partner, not a slave, not a servant, not just a son, but a partner. He wants me to be a part. It's like when you start a little tiny company and then some very large company comes and says, hey, do you want to join, be partners? We can be 50-50, right? You, you develop one little app on your phone and all of a sudden, IBM and Microsoft and Google all come and say, you know, let's be 50-50 partners. And you're like, really? You, you're Google. I'm just a guy. And like, yeah, we're going to be total partners. And God comes and he asks for the same. He says, Give me a little of yours, and I'll give you mine. Give me some of yours, and I'll give you all of mine. And you think, that's not a good deal. Because who always wins in that deal? The man always wins, right? When, when Christ asked Peter, hey, can I borrow your boat for a few minutes to give a sermon, what was the return? I fill it with fish. Alrighty, we asked the little boy for five loaves and two fish, what's the, what's the return? I feed thousands of people. This is the way God works. He wants us to be partners. You give me what you have, and I'll finish the rest. So this partner with with God, obviously we're the beneficiary, and even more than just a business partner. Abuna Akrylus, like he said last week, he wants us to be a friend. So more than a servant, more than a slave, more than a son, more than a partner, I, wanna, I want you to be a friend. And so we're called to be friends. Christ says, our friend Lazarus sleeps. He even called Judas at the moment of his betrayal. He says, friend, why have you come? So that's the relationship Christ is looking for. So what does it, what does it mean that God needs from me? When he comes wanting fruit from the vineyard, in my heart, planted in my heart. What does he need? What does God need? What about my love? What about my heart, my feelings? Does he need me? Does he need me? Does the Lord need my love? Of course, we can't comprehend what God feels about us. But I do know that he loved me to the point Of giving his only son as my savior, as my brother, as my friend, as my spouse. And so, how would you feel if you gave everything and I responded and gave you nothing back? How would you feel? We're created in the image of God, aren't we? Our feelings can reflect them, can't they? So, if I give you everything and you give me nothing back, how do you feel? St. Therese says, how would a husband think who, at who, when asking his wife, do you love me, receive the response from her, I have a great desire to love you. I'll work on it. I hope one day to achieve it when I have more time or when I feel like giving back to you. How would a husband feel if his wife said that to him? The husband who's given her everything. Do you love me? And she goes, eh. Ah. <laughs> so does God need us to love him back? He certainly desires it. Greatly desires it. Even if I have ten kids and one of them doesn't love me, who do I think about? Which child is on my mind? Which child am I praying about? Which child am I looking at? Which child am I thinking about all the time? That one. That's the one I can't think about anyone else. And can we sense God disappointment when we don't love him back? if we don't give back. When I was a little kid, my dad used to give me two cookies and then he'd say, can I have one back? Can I have a cookie? And of course, you feel like a little jerk if you don't give him a cookie, right? He just handed you two cookies. And so I would, I would give him the cookie, I'd say, oh sure, because I didn't want to feel bad about myself. I didn't want to, to look bad and you know, be a selfish person. But of course, I didn't think about my dad. For a moment, I didn't give him a cookie. How would he feel? How would it hurt him that his son would say, no, I want them. You can't have them. Last week, Abuna gave an amazing meditation about Job's, Job feeling God's pain. And we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but th- I love this meditation that, that God waits for us to speak with him. And that at the end of the day, we go into our room and we close the door. And God thinks, okay, now He's going to talk to me. Now we're going to have a t- we're going to have communication. Now He's going to open up His heart to me. And what do we do? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. The kingdom come. And God's like, ah, maybe next week, maybe tomorrow. Right? God is needing this from us. This this relationship. Okay. Um, I'll stop there. All right. I'll I'll end with the the words of Christ. Um, you want me to tell you the story? I'll tell you the story really quick. Of course I can't find it now. So there's a story about Elder Paisios. This is a, I, I heard the story a while ago. So some girl whose mother was ill with cancer came to him and asked, pray for my mother so that she will recover. So this, wo- this girl comes to Elder Paisios and says, my mom has cancer. Can you pray for her that she will recover? He answered her, well, I will pray so that your mother, whom you love so much, will recover. That is, that God will take this disease from her, but give it to you. So that you carry the cross instead of your mother. The girl was frightened. Father, what are you saying? I asked you to pray for my mother so that she will recover. Okay, yes, she'll recover, but may God give this disease to you. It will be better. You can deal with it. You're stronger. You're younger. No, Father. May my mother recover and no one get sick instead. But my child, how then can we show our love? Will you not show a little sympathy for the pain of another person? No, no. Okay, listen. This is what we will do. Let your mother recover, and you and I will share this cancer, half for you and half for me. Father, I ask you, listen to me. Can I pray that my mother will be completely cured and that we will all be healthy? But don't you want to learn to love at least a little bit? I already love her. For her, I am dying. How do you die for her? You get a little cancer, and I'll take most of the cancer for myself. And your mother will be cured. Interesting. So Elder Paisos was giving her a little bit of a test. She's saying, I love my mom. And he was kind of poking at the word love. Do you? Do you really love her? And he said, take her cancer. And it's like, I don't love her that much. And then he even said, I'll take half and you take half. And in my, in my heart, I thoroughly believe he would have taken the other half. And she said no to that too. May the Lord grant us wisdom to learn to, to love our enemies to understand that the enemy isn't the person. It's Satan who's manipulating us. And glory be to God forever. Amen.